Welcome to the Sword of the Spirit podcast with Brother Joe Rusiello. Take your Bible, sit back, and join us as we open and study the Word of God. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Now, here's your host. Well, good morning and welcome to the Sword of the Spirit podcast. This is Joe Rusiello, and I have a, the pleasure of being your podcast host and Bible teacher, oh, I'd say for about the next hour today. Uh, last week, we started our podcast uh, with uh, a lesson entitled, Are You Saved? Man, it was a blessing to study and prepare for that, and I hope that uh, it was a blessing for those of you that were able to hear it. It didn't exactly launch as planned. You know, we had some audio troubles and we had some uploading troubles. We had some scheduling troubles, but uh, I guess nothing that you uh, that you launch on a whim like that um, really can go without a hitch. But uh, hopefully, we're getting better at this, uh, and we'll get better at it as, as we go along. Um, if you're looking for us on social media, we don't have a presence on any social media platforms just yet. Uh, we're looking at Minds. Uh, as an alternative to Facebook, uh, mostly because Minds doesn't censor and try to shut down Christian or conservative voices. So I'll keep you posted on that as it develops. Uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be adding some more content and, and have some guests join us. And uh, again, I'll, on that, I'll keep you posted as well. Now, I just want to say that uh, I'm not a pastor, but I am a Bible teacher at my local church, which is First Baptist Church in Eagle Pass, Texas. Uh, I occasionally street preach, I distribute tracts, and I basically try to serve the Lord the best I know how. Uh, but if you have any questions or comments, you feel free to email me at joe at ephesians516.org. That's joe at ephesians516.org. Uh, I'm in the process of building a website for the podcast, and I'll keep you updated on that as well uh, as we get further along. So uh, with all that said, if you would... Grab your Bible, grab a cup of coffee or a bottle of water, and uh, sit back, and we'll get into our Bible study tonight right after this song. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, Eternal, bright, and fair When the Savior of earth Shall gather over on the other shore And the roll is called up yonder I'll be there Resurrection share When it's Jesus' ones 
Welcome back to the Sword of the Spirit podcast. Once again, this is Brother Joe Rusiello, and uh, I'm looking really forward to getting into the study tonight, uh, mostly because I'm going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is the Word of God. Uh, Now, I am a blood-bought, born-again, King James, Bible-believing Christian, and I'm convinced, with, with any shadow of a doubt, that the book that I hold in my hand, that's sitting here right in front of me at my desk, is the absolute, authoritative, final written word of God. But you know, unfortunately, many people, including preachers around the country today, are not convinced of that. And it's always kind of been a puzzle, to me at least, on on what they base their philosophies and everything that they do. It's difficult for me to understand how that a man can function in the realm of theology without an absolute authority. You know, philosophy is just too ambiguous. It's too relative. It's too wavering. I simply stand on the Bible as being God's truth. However, we live in an age in which many people honestly and sincerely ask a good question. Which Bible? Which Bible? Now, I'm aware of the fact that there are probably over 200 English-speaking Bibles in print today. So it's kind of puzzling, and it really is a puzzling thing when you begin to realize all the different versions that are available out there, uh, do you or do we really have the Word of God? Do we have a book that is totally reliable, that we can completely trust? Or do we just have something that's close to it, something that's in the general proximity? Uh, Do we have a book that contains the Word of God? Or do we have the Word of God? Well, which is it? Well, when I was a child around 1978, my my uncle, 
uh, bought me my first Bible. And I still have it for sentimental purposes. It really serves no other purpose. Um, it was called the Good News Bible in today's English version. Well, knowing what I know now, they should have called it the Bad News Bible. Then in 1985, the NIV was becoming the perversion of choice, and my uncle then bought me one of those. I spent countless, countless hours reading and studying that Bible, but I never got saved. It wasn't until July of 2000 that God, as he always does, provides for a man when he's searching, even as he provided for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, even as he provided for Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Even as he provided for the Philippian jailer, and even as he provided for the Apostle Paul, God will always provide for any man that's searching. And that's a principle that you'll find in, in uh, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Well, I began to search, and God sent a preacher my way. I had heard him on the radio. I heard him preaching a message on hell. And I felt that every sentence ended with, hey, Joe, do you got that? Hey, Joe, I'm talking to you, man. So I checked out his website, his church's website, and I read their doctrinal statements, and I agreed with them. So I gave him a call, and we, we ended up meeting in Lower Manhattan one evening, uh, and we talked. He asked me if he could show me a few verses from the Bible about salvation. And then for those of you that are listening that might be in that area of, of, of the country, in uh, New York, New York City, uh, we had gone out onto Pier 34 just off of Canal Street and West Street, and he led me to the Lord out of a King James Bible. Well, you know what? It changed my life. But I wasn't convinced at that point that I had the word of God. I would always say something like this. This is the best you can get next to the original translation of the original languages. But something started to stir in my heart about that book. In 2002, I met a preacher who became the Apostle Paul of the King James Bible issue for me. We spent hours talking. I liked him. I liked him a lot. I mean, he was sarcastic. He was humorous. He was sharp. He was pointed. He didn't mess around. And I said, I like this guy. I like this guy. He's got some answers. And then what he did was he introduced me, he introduced me to some great books. He introduced me to books by Dr. Peter Ruckman. Uh, Dr. Hills, John Jasperay, David Otis Fuller, Dean Burgon, and, and many, many others. All those books were great, and I would recommend them. But I became convinced that I have in my hand not a book that contains the Word of God, but I have the Word of God after I dropped my knees and I told the Lord that I was going to believe that this book is His book until He proves otherwise. It's been over 20 years, and he hasn't changed my mind. In fact, he's only reinforced it. So in the message that I have for us today is I have five reasons, maybe more, of why I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Now, I could list 50 reasons. I really could. I could probably list more than that. But I tried to consolidate it and refine it down to about five. So if you would... Grab your cup of coffee and take your Bible and let's turn to Psalm 12, Psalm chapter 12, and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you for the truth that is contained in it. Father, we thank you that you've preserved it throughout the centuries. 
Father, we're thankful that we have it. And Lord, we just ask you to bless the study tonight. Uh, help me to, uh, to convey the message that you've laid upon my heart. And Lord, I pray that uh, in some way that the message would reach someone who might be questioning or, or have uh, um, issues or uh, might need some clarity on their position on the King James Bible, your book. And Father, I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. All right, Psalm 12. Let's get a little coffee there. Psalm 12 and verse 6, we read, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Well, let's take a look back at uh, verse number 7 for a second. Thou shalt keep them. Well, what is the them referring to? Well, it's referring to the words in the verse before it, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. In God's word, he has promised to preserve his words, not word, but words, plural, every single one of them. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, Jesus said. God has promised to preserve his words. Now, we're faced with a promise of God then consequently we're faced with an answer and a question. First of all, we have to ask ourselves, did God, in fact, really do what he said he would do in this verse? Did he preserve his word? Did he do it? Or did God fail? Is God capable of inspiring a book, but not preserving it? And these are the questions that we're going to look to answer this morning. It's interesting to notice that the new versions change verse 7. It's interesting to notice that the newer versions read something like this. Thou shalt keep him, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve him from this generation forever. Well, who in the world is him in that verse? It's an effort to cloud the issue. Somebody doesn't want you to know that God had promised to keep his words. Turn with me over to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30 is the next book over from Psalms. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Every, 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 get this, every word of God is pure, every one of them. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. God realized, as the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write the New Testament, that immediately there would be those that would try to pervert, deny, and twist, and change the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, warned about that. He said that there would be those that would come about and, and, and corrupt the Word of God. Now, if you know anything about Bible history, you're fully aware of the fact that this has always been a satanic plan. As early as Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that Satan uh, brought any doubt to at all was the word of God. And when he staged a simple question, yea, hath God said? So Satan approached Eve and said, did God really say that? And I'm afraid that, that Satan for the last 6,000 years has not changed his strategy. Because for 6,000 years, it's basically been successful. He's come to people and he said, Yea, hath God said? Now, did God really say that? 
Did he really mean that? This is a strategy that's been implemented and has been extremely successful. Now, if God is unable to keep his word, then I'm not certain that God is really worthy of being worshipped. I'm not certain that God is really worthy of looking to for our salvation. You know, maybe we're wrong. Maybe the world is right. Maybe we ought to try to work out our own salvation on our own righteousness and our own self-effort. Maybe God really isn't capable of saving us. But I believe that any God that's capable of sending his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, any God that's capable of recording that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, any God that's capable of planning and laying down a plan of salvation so perfect as the Bible plan of salvation is fully capable of preserving his word for your benefit and mine. Now, God said that he would preserve his word. And as we study our Bible, we become fully aware that we have two lines of manuscripts. There's been God's line and the devil's line. From Genesis 3 and that day forward reveals to us that, that everything that God has done, the devil has always been interested in counterfeiting. He's always been interested in counterfeiting that. And particularly, Satan has been interested in counterfeiting God's word. If Satan can get you to believe a comic book instead of the truth, he's, thus, he's just that much ahead in the program of promoting his kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. So there's always been two lines of manuscripts. You can be sure of the fact that the devil hasn't waited until the last hundred years or so when we've seen this tremendous barrage of versions come on the scene to promote his line. No, his line has been in existence far longer than the last hundred years. The Old Testament has never been the main issue in Bible translations. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and it's been pretty much well-preserved in Hebrew, translated to the English and other languages. The real issue and of controversy has always been within the framework of the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. Now, oftentimes you'll hear a preacher stand up and, bless God, you know, I hope you never hear that from me, but oftentimes you'll hear a preacher stand up and say, in the originals immediately that's going to tell you something if you're paying close attention. That's going to tell you that he's trying to promote scholarship and let you know that he's more educated than you are. That's going to tell you that he's convinced that he's got more answers than the average, uh, the average uh, churchgoer, the average layman. You know what the Bible calls those people? Revelation chapter 3, Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. And that's two words. Nikaio and laity. Nikaio means ruler, and I'm pretty, mu pretty sure you know what laity means. It means a layman. Uh, those were some people in Bible days that set themselves up as a special priest class. So the Bible calls them Nicolaitans. And that's not translated, that's transliterated. That is that it was just brought right out into the English. The Nicolaitans were the people that told the layman, we are the priests. We have the word of God. We will tell you what you need to know. That sound familiar? Do you know what God said about the Nicolaitans? He said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, when you have some preachers that stand up and say, in the originals, they're lying to you. Okay? That's it. They're just flat out lying to you. There are no such things as the originals. 
In fact, I defy one preacher anywhere in the world to find an original. There are no such things. You couldn't find an original if you had the biggest magnifying glass and laser beam in the whole world. You couldn't find one. They're not around. They're gone. So when a preacher stands up and says, in the originals, you watch him. You watch him. Well, then what do they mean? They're trying to fool folks. Well, Joe, I mean, what do you mean that there are no originals? Well, the originals, as they were copied by the apostles, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, were very well-used documents. They were so well-used, in fact, that they, they were used right up. Copies were made from those originals. God then just preserved his word as he promised that he would. So there are no such things as originals. So now the Bible was translated into Greek. Then it was translated into Syrian, which is called the Peshetto Bible. Then in, by 157 AD, that Greek New Testament was translated into Latin. Now, the New Testament, mission, New Testament missionaries didn't wait until the Dark Ages, as some people have been deceived into thinking, to travel all across Europe. By the year 157, the Greek Bible had been translated into Latin. The nation to be reckoned with was Rome. Rome was the ruling nation, and they had ruled all the way over to France, Spain, even Great Britain, and all across Europe. God has always seen to it that his word was available in the language of the people. That was part of the promise of preservation. So the word was translated into Latin. It penetrated France and Spain and Italy. The Waldensian Christians in North Italy preserved that word. The Pope of Rome so hated that Latin Bible that was inspired from 157 and on that he ordered a complete massacre of the Waldensians in 1655. In the early 1500s, there was a man by the name of Erasmus, and he was probably one of the most brilliant scholars on the globe since the Apostle Paul. Erasmus was a diligent scholar. He was a man who was courted by the kings of Europe and was actually offered to be a cardinal by the Pope of Rome, which he refused so that he might pursue his diligent studies. Erasmus translated this Latin Bible back into Greek. Then there was a man by the name of William Tyndale, who was a student of Erasmus. In the middle 1500s, Tyndale took that Greek New Testament and he translated it into English. From 1563 and on, the English-speaking people fell in love with their Bible. They became a Bible-loving preacher uh, people. They became a people who were interested in the Word of God. They became a people who became concerned about the truth of God's Holy Word. They became a people who were noted to be concerned for God's word. Now, all of this came from one line of manuscripts. They came from Antioch, where people were first called Christians, according to the book of Acts. They were preserved in the Syrian text and into the Latin text, and finally Erasmus took it back into the Greek text. This text is called by scholars, even though they don't like to acknowledge it, the Textus Receptus, which are two Latin words which simply mean the received text. That means that they received the text from the apostles. That means that the text was received from the early church. William Tyndale took and provided the first English-speaking Bible. In 1582, the Jesuit Roman Catholic priesthood was formed. Uh, the Jesuit priesthood was, was formed for one reason, and I'm giving you historical fact here, which can be validated by any historian today. 
I'm not making this up, okay? In 1582, the Pope of Rome commissioned a special priesthood, the Jesuit priesthood, to write an English-speaking Bible to combat Tyndale's English Bible. Because of William Tyndale and his Bible, all of England fell in love with the English Bible. And consequently, God started to bless England. God started to multiply her as a nation. And she was considered, and she became what was considered in that day, a Protestant nation. Now, Catholicism had swept across Europe, but she quickly saw that she was losing her grip because of an English Bible and a German Bible that Martin Luther translated also from the received text. So very quickly, Europe was going Protestant and going away from the Catholic Church. Well, the Pope had to do something, didn't he? So in 1582, he commissioned the Jesuit priesthood to write a Catholic English-speaking Bible. The result of that was the rhymes Douay version. Well, it didn't seem like the rhymes Douay version was doing the job. So six years later, in 1588, the Pope of Rome commissioned Philip of Spain to send a Spanish armada. And do you know who financed that? Yep, you guessed it. The Vatican did. This Spanish armada consisted of 136 ships. Spanish galleons loaded with, thir- with 50 cannon each sailed up the English Channel. And the purpose of this Spanish armada was to make England Catholic, to impose upon England the rhymes Douay version, and to take away William Tyndale's English-speaking Bible. Sir Francis Drake went out with 15 men of war and 15 harbor tugs, and with the help of God, defeated the Spanish armada. The thing of it was, God was not through with England. God had great plans for England. Shortly after that, 1,000 Bible-believing ministers in Great Britain petitioned the king, King James, for a Bible without note or comment. It was called the Millenary Petition. The king appointed 54 scholars in his kingdom to get together and write an English-speaking Bible that the people could have absolute and total trust and confidence in. Of the 54 men, 47 did the work. The others either resigned or died before the work actually commenced. And those 47 men were then divided into six basic groups, six basic committees. The man who was the head of the entire committee was a man named Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews was comfortable in 20 languages. He knew, could speak, and could write 20 languages, ancient and up-to-date. It's said that he spent up to five hours a day in prayer. The King of England so reverenced Lancelot Andrews that he ordered whenever he was entered into court that all levity would cease because of the tremendous piety of this man. The magnitude of the scholarship of these 47 men is amazing. There was one one man by the name of John Day on that committee. It was said that he could read and write Hebrew by the age of five. He knew over 30 languages at the time of the translation of this Bible. Now, we talk about scholarship today. Do you know if, that if we search the face of the globe, we don't have the scholarship that could compare to the scholarship of those 47 men? We just don't have it. That kind of scholarship is just not in existence today. Men of tremendous minds, men of tremendous discipline, men of tremendous character. And the one thing that was in common among these men was that they had a tremendous reverence and a tremendous love for the Word of God. They treated this book as the Word of God. They really believed that this was the Word of God, and they approached it with a very, very prayerful attitude. On the other hand, we see the devil's line of manuscripts. 
It started with a man by the name of Origen in about 200 AD. Origen was a man who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He was a baptismal regenerationist. Uh, then the devil's line continued with a man named Jerome. Jerome was commissioned by the Pope because of the Waldensians' Bible's tremendous success in 388 AD to write what we know as the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate existed for 1,000 years in the Roman Catholic Church. Ignatius Loyola was a Spaniard who formed the Jesuits to complete the rhymes Douay version. God had plans to preserve his word. The founders of the modern version movement in the 19th and 20th century were two men by the names of Westcott and Hort. They took this material, this line of manuscripts from Origen and Jerome, and they developed it into what they called a Bible. Westcott and Hort basically took two lines of manuscripts. They took one called Vaticanus, which was found in the Pope's library in 1481. They took another one by the name of Sinaiticus, interesting, which was found by a German scholar named Tischendorf. And do you know where Tischendorf found those manuscripts? I'll give you a second. He found them in a wastebasket in a Mount Sinai monastery in 1859. The monks at the monastery didn't even have any use for it. So they threw it in the trash, and then here comes old Tischendorf and pulled it out and said, Ooh, look what I found. Both of these lines of manuscript contain the apocryphal books. These are the books that appear uh, between Malachi and Matthew. Now, we don't believe that they're authoritative scripture. Well, you say, well, why don't you believe that? Well, doesn't it seem a little bit strange to you that Jesus never quoted one time from the apocryphal books? That the Apostle Paul never quoted one time from them? That John, Peter, James, and all the rest never quoted one time from the apocryphal books? But they did from every other book of the Bible in the Old Testament. Doesn't that seem a little bit, I don't know, unusual? So Westcott and Hort developed a Greek text that is in use today unfortunately, in most seminaries around the world. The Greek text is one that's honored, or this Greek text is one that's honored the Apocrypha. It's one that honors Mariolatry and baptismal regeneration, among other things. God has his line of manuscripts, and the devil has his. The devil will do anything to get you to pervert the word of God. Now we're going to take a break here just for a few moments uh, so I can just get some more coffee and uh, we'll be right back after this song. You are the one we adore. You 
All right, and we are back, and I hope you enjoyed that song. It was a beautiful song and uh, probably one of my favorites. Uh, so let's get back into the study here. Uh, we left off with uh, the devil uh, that will do anything to pervert the Word of God. Well, the next reason why I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Now, mind you, I just tried to cram about 2,000 years of church history into about 20 minutes. Okay, So naturally, we, we missed a few spots here or there. Um, but the next reason why I believe the King James Bible is the word of God is, uh, you know, number one, we said because God said he would preserve a book. Number two, because of the manuscript evidence and the realization that there are two lines of manuscripts. And oh, by the way, um, this is the only English speaking Bible on the market today that came from the received text. All right. All of the others came from the Westcott and Hort line, Vaticanus and Sidiaticus, every one of them. All right. This is the only one that came from the line of the received text. So the third reason that I believe the King James Bible is the word of God is because of the way it treats the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when people come to me and ask me for a nutshell answer as to why I believe the King James Bible is the word of God, this is what I say. It is the only Bible in the English language that treats Jesus Christ properly on all occasions. I think that's pretty important, don't you? The Westcott and Hort text have, been, have, have taken away the title of Christ 16 times in the New Testament and have taken away the Lord 12 times. They've denied the deity of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 33. You know what? Turn to Luke 2.33 in your King James Bible. Your King James Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 33. I'll give you a second to get there. Luke chapter 2, verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Now, if you have any other revised version like the NIV, the TEV, the ASV, the RSV, your book says the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, folks, I have news for you. Uh, Jesus was not Joseph. Sorry, Joseph was not Jesus's father. The King James Bible is the only English-speaking Bible that recognizes that. The Westcott and Hort line denies the blood atonement. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Every other Bible has conveniently thought to leave the blood out. They simply say, In whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. What that implies is, is that if you live a good life, if you get baptized and if you join the church and if you do your best, then you'll make it to heaven. And that is a devil's lie. The Bible says you'll not be saved except by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not the truth, then why did God send his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If that's not the truth, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If his blood and his blood alone is not capable of saving your wretched soul and giving you eternal life, then everything that Jesus suffered, the agony that he endured in the Garden of the Gethsemane, the sweat drops of blood that he perspired from his forehead, the grueling torture that he endured when he was suspended between heaven and earth on an old rugged cross was all in vain and a futile, stupid effort if Jesus Christ's blood can't save you from your sin. Brother, you better get a hold of a Bible that honors that blood. Amen? Amen. And I'm, I'm glad to know that there is one. I'm glad to know that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. 
and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stain. I'm glad that that message is true. I'm glad that's true. Did you know that most of the modern versions eliminate Acts chapter 8, verse 37? They completely eliminate it. They take it clear out of the Bible. Most of them don't even put a footnote by it. They don't even tell you that they took it out. Do you know what Acts chapter 8, verse 37 says? Well, why don't you take your Bible and turn there? Acts chapter 8, verse 37. It's a discussion between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's start in verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? So the Ethiopian eunuch asks, Why can't I be baptized? And here's Acts 8.37. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Do you know what that verse tells me? That verse tells me that you have to get saved before you can get baptized. The devil doesn't want you to know that. If he could lift that verse out of the Bible, he can convince you that if you get baptized, you'll be saved. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Hell is going to be chock full of people who were baptized. I mean, I can get you into a baptistry or a swimming pool or, or I can take you down to the river here, you know, wherever you want to go, and you could be baptized 70 times 7 and it wouldn't do you any good. You can sprinkle it. You can say, hell, mother over the water and make it holy water or whatever kind of water you want to make it. And it won't help you one bit. It won't do a thing for you. There's only one thing that will clean you up. That's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You better stay away from any Bible that doesn't treat the Lord Jesus Christ just right. Well, there's another verse over in John. It's one that's familiar to all of us, right? John 3.16. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, most of the, new, of the new versions leave out that word begotten. Why? Because, well, it's an old, archaic, old English, outdated word. You know, but man, that's an important word. Do you know what that word begotten does? It separates Jesus Christ from everybody else. That says that he was begotten of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, the devil would like you to believe, like the Mormons would like you to believe, that Jesus Christ was just another son of God. Well, that's not what my Bible teaches. That's not what my Bible teaches, amen? I'm glad I've got the truth. Well, there's another reason. There's another reason, a fourth reason why I believe the King James Bible is the word of God, and it's because of the fruit of it. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Do you know how you know an apple tree? Well, it's got apples on it, right? How do you know an orange tree? It's got oranges on it. How do you know a tree? By its fruit. I mean, how many of you would know a banana tree if it didn't have bananas on it? I wouldn't. You know a tree by its fruit. That's what Jesus said. He was teaching you a principle. And you know what else? You know people by their fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You know what else? You know a Bible by its fruit. Do you know what this Bible's brought? What it's produced? It's produced salvation for millions of souls. You know what book George Whitfield, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, and John Knox, 
Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably the great Baptist, uh, one of the greatest Baptist preachers. Uh, D.L. Moody, Truett, Cartwright, Finney. Every great preacher that I can name for the last 300 years, every, and I mean no exceptions, every great preacher that I could name for the last 300 years, do you know what book he preached out of? The one that's sitting here right in front of me on my desk. This is where the power is. This book, this book, this book. I watch the fruit of something. I watch the fruit of this book. I watch the modern versions and I see confusion. I see chaos. I see people speaking in tongues. I see people trying to get healed where there's no healing available. I see people looking for a gift of the spirit that isn't there. All I see is confusion. And then I see people that love this book and I see order. I see discipline. I see souls being one, lives being changed. And then the last reason that I believe the King James Bible is the word of God is because of the way it was written. The way it was written. People always say, but it's old English. It's archaic. It's out of date. It's not up-to-date contemporary language. Don't you understand? Yes, I do understand. Praise God that it's not. Do you know when, when God inspired and preserved this book to be written? Do you know how he did it? I mean, do you think God's asleep at the switch? God knew that English would become a universal language, didn't he? God's smarter than we are. God knew Latin would become a universal language when it did. Therefore, he prepared a Latin Bible. God knew that English would become a universal language when it did. Therefore, he preserved an English Bible in direct accordance with his promise in Psalm 12 when he said that he would preserve his word. You know, I have a good friend who's an evangelist, and we sat at his dining room table one night, and the subject of the Word of God came up. And we disagree on the King James Bible. He's the type of guy that believes any Bible will do. Um, but here's how the conversation he ended. He goes, I've traveled all around America. I've preached in hundreds of different churches. He goes, the one, there's one thing I'll have to admit. Wherever I go and wherever I meet people and I see them memorizing the Word of God, they're memorizing this one. I mean, good night. Have you ever tried to memorize an Amplified Bible? Did you ever try to do that? It would blow your mind. I'll guarantee that I could memorize 20 verses out of this Bible before you can memorize two out of anything else. You know why? This book was written in Elizabethan Shakespearean English. Yes, it's archaic. Yeah, it's out of date. Did God know what he was doing? Absolutely he did. This book is written with rhyme and rhythm and meter. It's easy to memorize. It's easy to memorize. Listen, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's easy. That's easy. You know, the Shakespearean language was not the language of the street in 1611. People didn't walk around and say, Hi, thee. They didn't do that. They didn't say, How art thou? <laughs> they didn't do that. Then why did God preserve his word in that kind of language? Well, because it's a language of eloquence. It's a language that's easy to memorize. And it's also not hard to understand. Listen, 
He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Did you notice something about that verse? That's 1 John 5.12 if you want to look it up. Did you notice something about that verse though? It's all one-syllable words. It's all one-syllable words. And I don't know if I'd be too quick to say I couldn't understand a verse of one-syllable words. You can understand it. Hollywood actors memorize volumes of Shakespeare. It's got rhyme, it's got rhythm, and it's got meter. Do you think God knows what he's doing? Oh, amen. God knows what he's doing. This book is the book of books. The other reason why God translated that book and preserved it when he did and brought all those scholars together and all the other factors together to consider was that the English language at the time in 1611 was right at its apex and it was ripe for receiving an English-speaking Bible. Today, an accurate English-speaking Bible could not be translated. God knew that it couldn't in the 21st century for the simple reason that it would be a tremendous problem of semantics. Words mean so much more now than they did then. They have so many more meanings and, and inflections than they did then. The language of the English people then was a very broad, general language, and God took advantage of it at precisely the right moment. So now you have the opportunity and the ability to pick up this book and allow the scripture to interpret the scripture. You know, my soul gets thrilled when I realize what God has done for me in preserving this book. Do you realize that the volume of blood that have been shed so that you might have this book? Do you know that no one has ever died for another English-speaking version? Do you know that no national revival has ever taken place with another English-speaking version? God has blessed this thing, and God has used it. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. When looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter these hammers so? Just one, said he, then with a twinkling eye. The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. Hammer away, ye rebel bands. Your hammers break. God's anvil stands. This book tells men how to get saved. This book will tell you how to go to heaven. This book will tell you how to get your sins forgiven. This book will tell you what it means to be a son of God, a child of faith. This book and this book alone will tell you what it means to have absolute confidence in eternal life. This book says, as no other book says, and I like this. You want to talk about rhyme and rhythm and meter? Listen to this. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He that hath the, hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Man, that's good. That's good. This book tells you that there's one that cares for your soul. Tells you that there's one that died for you to make you whole. Tells you that there's one that gave his life. I hold in my hand the absolute written word of God. I don't hold a book that contains the word of God. I hold the 
word of God. And this book that I hold in my hand says that if you die in your sin, you're going to go straight to hell. The book that I hold in my hand says that if you receive Jesus Christ as your personal savior, he'll make you a child of God and save you. This book that I hold in my hand says that he desires to give you eternal life and all you have to do is trust him and ask him for forgiveness of sins. That's why this book is still the number one bestseller. This book tells the truth. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This book loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that, he loves it. Well, folks, we've come to the end of today's uh, broadcast, and I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, once again, if you have any questions or any comments, please feel free to email me at joe at ephesians516.org. And uh, my prayer is tonight or today that you have, uh, that, that you've heard this message and it spoke to your soul and it helped answer some of the questions that you might have about which Bible. Uh, so on behalf of all of us here at the Sword of the Spirit podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening. God bless you and good day. You've been listening to the Sword of the Spirit podcast with Brother Joe Rusiello. Feel free to email any questions or comments you may have to joe at ephesians516.org. May God bless you and good day. <laughs>